Football is back, and Domino's Hawaii couldn't be more excited. Our community has been through a lot this year, and so to show our appreciation for all your efforts and sacrifice, we'd like to do our part in helping you enjoy the games by offering large specialty pizzas for $15.99 and our new buffalo wings for $5.99. Just log on to the Domino's Hawaii website or app, and remember, while you watch your favorite team, you can be assured that our team continues to make your health and safety a top priority. What's up, Jordan? How's it going, man? All right, let's warm things up. Our little pregame topic. Uh, we crowned an NBA champion this week, the Lakers winning franchise number 17. But it made me think, who's your favorite NBA player who never won an NBA championship? I think I got to go with Steve Nash. I, I, I loved me some, some Nash. Uh, all about his game, just the flair. Those Suns teams were so fun. Like they, I was a big Kings fan also because I was a big anti-Lakers guy. So I really love the Weber, you know, Bibby, even Jason Williams before that, Divac, um, Kings teams. And then the Suns kind of became that team, that next fun, up-tempo team uh, that didn't quite win. <laughs> uh, and so I, I got I to gotta go with Steve Nash. Steve Nash is my guy, my favorite guy never to win a ring. Maybe he'll win one in Brooklyn as a coach now or as a partner to Kyrie and Kevin Durant, yeah, whatever, right. they're, whatever they're calling his position. Yeah. Kyrie says they don't have a coach. And so uh, that's not going to be problematic going forward. Um, yeah, I would say Steve Natch is a great candidate for this two-time MVP, right? Uh, but I think as far as just my favorite player who I, I just loved watching over the years, it would be Vince Carter. And now that he's retired, right, after 21 seasons or whatever, uh, now we can sort of put him in that same category, right, of great player who never won a title, uh, but just the greatest in-game dunker in the history of basketball, had so many high-flying and highlight moments throughout his career. I would have loved to have seen him flash the uh, shine of a ring at some point. He's my favorite NBA player who never won a title. All right, welcome to the show. This is another episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. And we are going to be talking a little bit of hoops, but we're going to be talking about hoops from the coaching perspective. Mark Adams, ESPN college basketball analyst. I've had the privilege of working with him back in the ESPN tip-off marathon days. You remember that? 24 hours of college basketball coverage, and it would always include a midnight or 11 p.m. start time game at the Stan Sheriff Center and feature the University of Hawaii. And so Mark came down several years. I was able to work with him. 17 years of head coaching experience that he will bring to this conversation. Coached at Central Connecticut State, Western Oregon, Rocky Mountain College, was an assistant at several other spots. But he recently posted an essay on changes he feels are needed within the coaching profession, specifically the collegiate coaching profession, across all sports, by the way, but particularly in light of the recent Wichita State allegations of misconduct and abuse involving head coach Greg Marshall. This harkens back to what we saw at Rutgers back in 2013 with Mike Rice. I mean, this goes all the way back to Bob Knight. Uh, but basically, he is suggesting that some of the behavior of coaches that is acceptable, quote unquote, in college sports would not be acceptable in any other industry or facet of professional life. And so what he is suggesting is, hey, maybe we take some tips from other forms of professional communication and try to utilize those tools and try to utilize that form of constructive communication in sports. So we'll get into all that with Mark Adams in just a little bit, but it is game time. 
and the king is crowned once again in the NBA. LeBron James and the Lakers claiming NBA title number 17 for the franchise in the Orlando bubble. Uh, that ties the Lakers with the Celtics for most ever. LeBron wins his fourth with his third team, by the way, as well as the finals MVP for the fourth time as well. So, Jordan, how does this title affect your view of LeBron and his legacy? You know, I personally – it doesn't change much. And I don't know for, for the general public out there, the mass amount of people, if it, if it affects them that much in terms of their viewpoint, like how they gauge LeBron's legacy. Like I think people were either going to diminish the title, you know, it wasn't a real title, put an asterisk on it, all these kinds of things. He didn't face the Clippers. He didn't face the Bucks or anything like that. Or if you had already sort of fallen on the side of LeBron is this great entity, uh, you're going to talk about how this is the hardest championship ever won in a bubble situation. You don't have home court. And so I, I don't know if this changes the narrative necessarily, right? I think a lot of people's minds were made up, especially if you're on the debate of is LeBron greater than Michael Jordan? Is he the best ever? You know, I don't know what it would take. Like, would it take LeBron winning a sixth title? Would it take him winning a seventh title? Then everybody's just going to bring up the fact that he is, you know, he's also lost six times in the finals or something like that, right? I mean, there will always be ways to poke holes in the argument one way or another. I think the thing that I just kept appreciating on Sunday, and maybe in part because the game was over in the second quarter and that <laughs> Lakers defensive flurry in that first half was something to behold. Uh, what they did to the Heat in that first half to go up that huge margin was so much of what they did defensive. It was just appreciating LeBron, just appreciating and Anthony Davis as well. And some of those other players, Rondo, I'd love Rajon Rondo. Watching him play basketball, playing basketball with him has got to be so much fun, just the way he played. But just appreciating the greatness of LeBron and, and just kind of taking a step back and not looking at it as in terms of, you know, where does he rank on your all-time pedestal? What does he deserve in terms of respect? Which I think, yeah, LeBron, he likes to overdo that a little bit, as we saw in the post-game interview. And that <laughs> will turn people off. And it always kind of grinds my gears because I love him so much. But I, I think just taking a step back to appreciate being able to witness this, right? For, for those that got to witness the Michael run, if you're a Kobe guy or whatever, just, just being able as a fan of basketball, a fan of the game, to witness what he is still doing, what he is still capable of doing, how in that game he said, the heck with it, I'm getting to the rim no matter the cost. And he just continually got to the basket and was able to finish. And like, he's still doing that. Yeah, I think we saw on display the physical specimen that he is yet again, right? I mean, this is a guy who's never missed a playoff game. And just one game after he and Jimmy Butler duel mano a mano type of battle for the ages, right, in the NBA Finals. Uh, and you saw how spent Jimmy Butler was playing all but what one minute, I think, in that uh, Game 5 victory for the Heat. And so you saw in Game 6, Butler didn't have anything left in the tank. And this is a guy who is still, in terms of his age, very close to his prime years. Here is LeBron in year 17, soon to be 36 years old. And he still had enough in the tank to finish the deal. In fact, he had another triple-double in him, uh, adding to his career triple-doubles total in the NBA Finals, which now I think is 11 or something like that. Just ridiculous stuff. And so it reminded me as to just how impressive he is as a physical specimen, as an athlete, the guy taking care of his body in ways that other athletes just don't have the resolve or commitment to pull off. 
it was on full display right there. And, and so what I found myself appreciating is very much the same thing. Just like, wow, this is something that we've never seen before. Maybe something we will never see again. And obviously the MJ comparison is something that is obligatory, especially when it comes to this kind of media, right? Sports talk. Uh, but at the same time, anytime you introduce the, all right, who's the goat? It forces you to disparage one group or party in that debate. And so I, I don't love going there. Uh, I think there's room to say, hey, MJ may have the greatest resume of all time, or, or maybe he had the greatest, most complete career unblemished in the finals, if you want to put value on that kind of thing. But you can still say, I don't know if I've seen anything on a basketball court that is quite like LeBron James, that is quite as, as all-around skillful and physically imposing as LeBron James. And, and I like that we can look at those two guys and maybe throw Kobe in here as, as far as just a player profile and say they all did it differently. I mean, Kobe was very much a facsimile of MJ and his approach to the game, but LeBron, a little more methodical, a little bit more of a thinker on the court, thinking and slow playing his way into games as, as opposed to just being this force of nature that, that Michael Jordan, uh, certainly from a scoring standpoint, was. Uh, and this 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 cold-blooded killer mentality that that MJ uh, exhibited. I think LeBron's a little bit different than that, and I think that's cool. I think that's okay. There are multiple ways to be legendary and be great, and LeBron sort of has carved out his niche and his method of doing it. Uh, and I think that uh, it, it's it's important for us to to kind of appreciate it while it's here. Uh, look at what happened with the the Kobe Bryant passing here this year. Uh, it it really forced us and motivated us to appreciate him in a way that maybe we didn't when he was playing. And, and I think it's important for us to appreciate what LeBron is doing. The Lakers are able to cap this thing. Obviously, he and AD make a pretty devastating tandem. We'll see what happens with Anthony Davis and his contract moving forward. But are the Lakers, assuming that Anthony Davis stays put in LA, are the Lakers your favorite to win it again next year? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. And, and the other thing that the Lakers were missing was Avery Bradley, who was one of their starting guards and a really good two-way player. Uh, they didn't have him at all for the restart in the bubble and, and during the playoff run. And we saw what the addition of Rajon Rondo could do with this group and, and took some pressure off LeBron in terms of the ball handling responsibilities. Um, but what we'll see what the landscape looks like, right, when, once we get closer to the next season start time, whenever that is, because we really don't know when the next season is going to start. Probably sometime after the new year is my guess. Maybe it's a Christmas start time. We'll, we'll see if they are willing to ramp up so quickly and what the movement is, who is the head coach across town or, or down the hallway, I guess mm -hmm. I should say, in L.A. for the Clippers, right, because they got an awful lot of talent coming back too. Uh, but I, I, I still would, would favor – the Lakers. I think what they do with this group, with LeBron and Anthony Davis, right? And I, and I think, and as we look back at it, Anthony Davis is the best running mate he has had at any point in his career. And, and, and that is uh, no slight to, to Kyrie or Bosch or Wade. Like Anthony Davis is all time special in terms of his talent. Uh, but I think this Lakers group, they, they, they've got depth, they've, you know, and, and they may lose some pieces along the way. They've got versatility. That was the other thing that made them so good, especially in the playoffs where you're facing a different opponent every round and you have to be able to adapt. Um, but the other thing that this group had, and it maybe it's hard to replicate again, especially after coming off of this grind of a, you know, a 12-month season, basically, um, was defensively, you know, and that's something that LeBron didn't have a lot in Cleveland, 
he had it in Miami uh, and, and sort of got re-engaged with this group. But defensively, man, they were good when they needed to be, especially. Uh, and so the, the Lakers, with, with he and AD, if they've got those two and some of the pieces around them, right, uh, I mean, it, it's hard. It's hard to pick against them when you survey the rest of the, the league, right? They're still as good, if not better, on paper than anybody. Yeah, I think Vegas has them as the odds favorite. Uh, I think that um, they're clearly going to be among the favorite in terms of contendership. Uh, but it remains to be seen what Kevin Durant is now post-Achilles injury. Uh, if he comes back to form, that obviously changes the conversation, especially in the Eastern Conference with the Brooklyn Nets, uh, because he and Kyrie and that cast that they have already there that has proven themselves to be competitive uh, I, I think that would be a team to be reckoned with and the Golden State Warriors are going to be back here right you're going to have Steph and Clay healthy and who knows what they add through the draft they have that high draft pick so it could be like an Obi Toppin or a James Wiseman or somebody like that right like a big that's athletic that maybe can shoot the three there's even murmurings that maybe the Warriors would be interested in trying to put together a package and try to lure the Milwaukee Bucks into trading them Giannis right because the Bucks don't want to run into a situation where they lose Giannis after next season when he becomes a free agent and can opt out for nothing. And so maybe the Warriors go, all right, we'll send you Draymond, we'll send you this, we'll send you that, and uh, you send us Giannis. So, I mean, the Warriors have some options here, and I think that they're a team to be on the lookout for. So I don't know if I'd go so far and say, yeah, the Lakers got this in the bag. The Clippers are going to be really good again. Um, there's going to be a lot of other teams that are ready to compete here. We're not in that super team era anymore where it was KD and Curry and Thompson and Draymond where it just tilted the scales so heavily in their direction. Uh, this is a little more up for grabs, and I like it. As an NBA fan, this is why it's fun, because I think there are going to be a lot of teams that are going to be in that conversation. All right, we flip it over to the gridiron, and one of the teams that's always in the conversation as far as popularity took a huge hit here this past weekend. The Cowboys quarterback, Dak Prescott, underwent surgery for a fractured and dislocated ankle, suffered in the Cowboys' narrow victory over the Giants on Sunday. Dak was playing on a one-year franchise tag worth roughly $31 million. He's now in danger of not receiving a top-level long-term contract offer, and there are some who have expressed anger and even blame towards Jerry Jones, the owner of the team, for not signing Dak to a long-term deal prior to this injury. Do you agree with that sentiment because obviously this is a tragic injury for Dak Prescott I don't think anybody hates Dak Prescott they think he's a good dude um, but they did offer him a lengthier term deal for a pretty significant amount of money and he turned it down so is some of this expression of blame and anger towards Jerry Jones justified in your mind I think it's a bit misplaced. And look, there, there's a lot of reasons for Cowboys fans to be frustrated with the brain trust there in Dallas, right? And Jerry and Stephen Jones, uh, just the way that this has unfolded. The Mike McCarthy hiring does not look like it has been much of an upgrade on Jason Garrett up to this point. And, and I think you could argue even a downgrade. Uh, and they are, you know, fortunate to have two wins at this point and, and sitting atop the NFC East. But it was a situation, right? They, they offered him what I thought was actually a pretty fair amount in that contract. Dak was looking to, to make, you know, maybe not Patrick Mahomes money, but, but close to it, right? And, and higher than some of the contracts that have been given out to guys like Jared Goff and Matt Ryan over recent years. And so, you know, when you get to that point, it's kind of tough because do I, do I think Dak commands you know, upwards of Patrick Mahomes money or, or, you know, basically second fiddle to that. I don't think so. Now, is it faulty on him to, to go and seek that? No, absolutely not. And that's part of the negotiation for this scenario, right? Where it's a catastrophic injury like this, 
it's obviously going to elicit some really strong reactions, but I, I really don't think there's anybody to blame in this situation for not getting the contract done. Like they were, they were at an impasse. And so you end up with a situation where he's got to play out the year and, and bank on it. And look, it worked out for guys like Kirk Cousins, who had a similar situation was like, Hey, I'm not going to settle for less. I'm going to play out these tags and I'm going to go sign for Buku bucks elsewhere. And it did, it worked out because he didn't get hurt and he proved himself at least worthy to the Vikings and, and Dak will hopefully get a situation like that. You just never know when it's an injury like that. And it's a, it's a terrible situation, but I don't think there's necessarily large amounts of blame to go around either way. It was just, you know, one of those deals where it kind of sucks for everybody. It strikes me as just more of an emotional response mm -hmm. and, and maybe backlash to the situation because that was a pretty powerful moment. I am by no means a Cowboys fan. If anything, I am a Cowboys hater, but seeing the tears streaming down the cheeks of Dak Prescott, knowing the likely severity of that injury while he's being carted off the field, that was powerful stuff. And you feel bad for the guy, but he bet on himself. And in this particular situation, that wager did not return for him. He lost in that bet because part of that wager is that you are going to get through that upcoming season without injury. Uh, and so, unfortunately, that was the tactic that he took. I don't like hearing when uh, you, you hear a lot of people say that, oh, he doesn't deserve to be paid as much as Patrick Mahomes or as much as this quarterback or as much as that one. It's like the market dictates whether you're worth it, right? If a team is willing to put that contract in front of you, then you are worth it. That's just how the, the salary game is played. Uh, in this particular instance, though, Dak said, all right, I think I can make more money. I think I'm in a position to command more money. And so I'm going to bet on myself as opposed to signing that long-term deal and it just blew up on him unfortunately and we wish him the best and hope that he comes back certainly Cowboy Nation rooting for that as well your other NFL standout story from week five what would it be Jordan yeah you know I, I think it's uh some of the situations that haven't worked out whether it's the the Dan Quinn you know firing leading up to to the game and and of course uh Jeff Ulbrich former yeah. University of Hawaii great linebacker getting a promotion basically there uh, you know, I, I think that's a that's a big storyline going forward, obviously, the Dak deal. Uh, and then you think of, you know, situations like Le'Veon Bell, right? Where's he going to land now? Uh, I think that's such a huge wild card in all of this. Uh, but I do think it, even in a loss, I guess because it was Monday night, like the Justin Herbert story hmm. is kind of amazing to me at this point because it's he's played so much better than I ever expected. Uh, and, and you almost look back on it and be like, man, I don't know if Oregon really maximized his talents as good as he was there and as much success as they had. You know, 0-4 as a starter. But he's been in every single game. Two have been the overtime losses to two potential Hall of Fame quarterbacks in Drew Brees and Patrick Mahomes. He sh probably should have beaten Tom Brady in Tampa Bay the other week as well. But, but this Justin Herbert kid, man, he's, he's kind of caught my eye and, and, and really become one of the big stories to me, even though he still hasn't won a game yet in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, he did pretty much anything or everything that he needed to do for them to win that game, right? The kicker kicks a field goal at the end, and they get out of the Superdome as winners that particular evening. Uh, and you're right. I think the juxtaposition of seeing his arm and his arm strength and the kind of throws that he's making down the field. And remember, this is a really injury-ridden Chargers team that he's also trying to work with. Uh, and to see that arm on display compared to what we're seeing currently, and I hate to kind of – you know, throw salt on the wound here for Drew Brees, but it doesn't look like that arm strength. It doesn't look like that arm dexterity is quite what it was. He has become very much a dink and dunker type of passer. And I know missing Michael Thomas will play into that. Uh, but at the same time, just seeing those two players on opposite ends of their careers in terms of the timeline, it, it just, it kind of made it even more dramatic for me when you would compare it to the kind of throws that Drew Brees, I guess, couldn't 
really make down the field uh, in that game. So, yeah, he's, he's legit. I, I think my top story, though, is, is certainly what you mentioned, UH linebacker Jeff Ulbrich. Uh, being elevated to defensive coordinator in Atlanta as Raheem Morris took over the head coaching responsibilities after Dan Quinn got let go uh, and decided to give his former D.C. role to Ulbricht says there's a lot of trust in that relationship. He, he wanted to have someone that he could delegate that responsibility to. And it is Jeff Ulbricht who has just steadily climbed in the coaching ranks. And here he is now as a D.C. in the NFL. Couldn't be happier for the guy. This is a guy who has openly discussed some of the mental health issues that he had to confront when he was facing his retirement as a player and just coming to grips with his career being over uh, and not knowing exactly where he was going to go from there and having to deal with those struggles. He's talked openly about it. And here he is now as a defensive coordinator, obviously uh, things going in a great direction for him personally. And I'm just really, really stoked to see that. All right, well, we'll talk about his alma mater a bit. UH football is granted national TV time twice this upcoming season. The Mountain West Conference announcing its national television schedule, and it includes two Hawaii dates, October 30th at Wyoming on FS1. That's their second game of the season. And then November 21st at home against Boise State on CBS Sports Network. Your thoughts on UH's TV exposure here in this upcoming year? Yeah, you know, I, I thought these were uh, two logical games for sure. Wyoming should be pretty good again uh, in Boise State, obviously, and that being here in Hawaii, uh, I think, is a big deal. And getting those nationally televised games at home in the islands, big deal, I think. Obviously, you showcase, right, all of the, the exposure that comes with the, the free commercial, if you will, for Hawaii and, and for the program and, and recruiting and all that goes into it, while also playing – at a usual start time, like, right, this isn't a Friday kickoff. This isn't a Thursday kickoff. It isn't a Saturday at two o'clock in the afternoon kickoff. Um, the, the announcement was Saturday, six o'clock away time. Like that's the normal kickoff time. So you don't really have to compromise anything to get the national TV cameras here in Hawaii against a marquee opponent, obviously, arguably the highest profile opponent, I would say, without a doubt on the schedule here this year, being at an all-conference schedule. Uh, and that's a big deal, I think. And you, you play that, you know, 11 p.m. kickoff back on the East Coast, 8 o'clock on the West Coast, and, and, you know, Hawaii after dark, if you will. I think there's a certain magic to that on national TV, and having one of those games, I think, is a big deal. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, because uh, they are very closely monitoring the situation with Spectrum's TV coverage because of that contract and the importance of the money that comes out of that contract. So uh, you would assume that there's now six remaining regular season games that Spectrum can deliver on and at least get very close to the minimum requirement per season. Obviously, this is a unique season in terms of schedule setup, but if they can get very close to what is the minimum requirement of games that Spectrum is demanding on pay-per-view, uh, I think that's important as well. So they get a couple of national exposure dates. You would hope that maybe those nationally televised dates would be against teams that uh, aren't going to be uh, as difficult, right? Wyoming and Boise State, those are supposed to be the two beasts in what is usually the mountain division of this Mountain West Conference. Uh, and so you would hope maybe you had a bit more of a quote-unquote cupcake date that's on national TV so you can kind of put yourself on display in that way. Uh, but hey, if they get a win on the road against Wyoming, if they get a win over a Boise State team that will probably have national uh, ranking implications, uh, I think that that would serve the program pretty well too. So you got to look at it as an opportunity, that's for sure.
All right, let's get to our dominoes of what you main topping, and it is our discussion with Mark Adams, ESPN college basketball analyst. Uh, I've worked with him in the past. He's a great, great dude. 17 years of head coaching experience and posted recently an essay on changes he feels are necessary in the college coaching profession in light of the recent Wichita State allegations of misconduct and abuse involving head coach Greg Marshall. So let's go ahead and play that right now. Mark, it's great to see you. Uh, you know, we've kept in touch, but uh, this is the first time we've kind of been at least as, as much as possible these days face to face. So uh, it's great to see you. And, and uh, how's, how's life treating you? You know, life is great. And I still go back to those 4 a.m. Eastern time games on ESPN <laughs> during, during the, the 24 hours of basketball. And, and you were my partner and a great one, too, by the way. And we haven't got a chance to work since then. So ESPN, if you're watching right now, I want to do another game with Kanoa somewhere along the line. Even if it's not in Hawaii, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're just hoping for games at this point. I mean, just any kinds of games. But it would really be wonderful uh, to work with you again. Uh, had so much fun. Uh, doing that. And, and I thought that this was a great opportunity for us to connect, being that you had posted uh, this very interesting column about what you deem to be necessary changes in the coaching industry, particularly as it pertains to the collegiate level. And so to give all of your listeners and watchers a, a, a little bit of a recent historical background, you know, Greg Marshall at Wichita State has been accused of punching a player. And these are allegations. I want to make that clear because Greg is a really good friend of mine. And I'll get into that a little bit as well. Uh, he was also accused of grabbing an assistant coach, uh, among some other things. And I saw the rush to judgment. And while all of those behavior, behaviors, as described, uh, I, if I did those things, I would expect to be severely punished. I would probably expect to lose my job. But I saw our culture is to, to get to a point where we don't prejudge, where we allow the process to run out, where we, we have an open mind so that the accuser also has their opportunity and their day in court, if you will. Uh, but at the same token, when you look back on Mike Rice at Rutgers and what happened there, there was a lot of abuse that went on there. Sean Woods was, was another name that came up with you know, coaches who were too aggressive in their coaching style. Bob Knight, the legendary Bob Knight, and the things that he did. And, and listen, Kanoa, I have to be completely transparent here, where I coached for 17 years, and the things that I'm going to talk about today, I broke those rules. I was not the coach then that I would be and am today, because I still coach. And so my point of the article was that I work in a business environment today, where, Kanoa, we both work for ESPN, and we both go through the training of what is racism? What is harassment? What is respect of our teammates at ESPN? And while you and I will both admit that sometimes it seems a little time consuming, I started thinking in terms of why is that so important, especially today? And how could we use those strategies that ESPN employs to help us be better people? How could those be used in coaching? Because the, the types of words that coaches use and the message that they deliver at times would never be acceptable in a business environment. And I work for an IT company as my other job in software testing. And I would be fired if I treated my team members at Lighthouse Technologies and or at ESPN like I used to my own players in Kanoa, that's wrong. And I was wrong. And so I looked inward and decided that I need to get the word out and challenge coaches of all sports to review 
how they deliver their messages to their student athletes, because ultimately we, and I say we as a former coach, we are preparing student athletes for a professional life. Well, yelling at them and screaming at them is not going to be, should not be a part of their professional life. And so we need to change. We need to have mores. We need to have standards. We need to have ethics that are more in line with the best business practices versus the traditional coaching that we all once did. It has to change. And that's why I wrote the article. Yeah, very well put. And, and I'm not going to pretend to be a therapist of any sort, but it does strike me as odd because uh, you're right. I mean, this goes back generations. This is sort of how many of us who played sports or are a part of sports understand that relationship to be, right? The coach and the player, especially right. when you're talking about amateur sports. Uh, but it seems odd to me because the whole idea of, of yelling or lambasting a player it strikes me as a moment of, of anger and expression on the part of the coach and not always something that, that would be constructive. And so it, it sounds like what you're trying to get to here and what you have written is, all right, how can we create more constructive communication as opposed to emotional communication between coaches and players? That's exactly right. And, and the phrase is constructive, critical comments. And listen, you've been evaluated I've been evaluated. We have had mentors in our lives. We've had bosses in our lives who have shared their concerns as to how we can get better. And we remember those mentors, don't we? And I tell my son, he's a 15, 16 U baseball player. He plays up a year. He's 15 years old. But I tell my son, Robbie, because I, I still coach high school level student athletes in baseball. And I coach third and fourth grade basketball, which is a whole nother story, which is very, very cool, by the way. But I don't coach those kids any different than I did in my 17-year coaching career, except for I don't use any cuss words, and I did. I'm not proud of it, but, but I, don't, I don't do any of that anymore. I try to be more like I am right now, where if I have a constructive critical comment, Kanoa, I would pull you aside and say, hey, listen, you know, when we were going to break the last time, you said this, but really what I, what, the reason why I wrote this note is because I wanted to lead to this. You know, that's constructively critical. That's not challenging you or t telling you that you're dumb. Or, and, and I've seen things happen like that. And so being constructive, being critical is okay as long as it's delivered in a measured way. And listen, if, if you've got to get direct with a player, I don't have any problem with that. But the, the cussing, the demeaning that leads to other behaviors, because it's like anything else. If you're an alcoholic, and you take a drink, and then you take another drink, another drink, guess what? That leads to self-destruction. And when these types of behaviors start as a sarcastic comment that's laced with a profanity, that's laced with an, act, an action man where maybe you grab somebody, it all escalates. What I want to do is remind coaches that our job is to teach and de-escalate and help players to understand how to handle those situations I'm not a trophy for everybody guy. I don't believe in that. I think we need to go out and compete. And I know that winning is important, but you know what? Winning in business is important too. And I think that so many people get so hung up on making the excuse for coaches like me and say, well, their job is to win. But that doesn't mean that you can't be civil. That doesn't mean that you can't be a teacher. Once upon a time, coaches were seen as teachers. Now they're almost seen as corporate entities unto themselves because of the millions of dollars that they make. 
and those millions of dollars because they want to protect that. They lose sight of why they're actually in coaching, which is to help young people ultimately be successful. That's what real coaches do. And that was the point of the article. And yeah, Mark, I was kind of curious, you know, it, loved reading the the article and, and you're being around so many of these programs still in, in your role now as an analyst. Uh, do, do you see that taking place in programs where maybe there is a shift going on uh, generally or maybe program by program in, in how coaches sort of approach uh, their relationship and, and, and teaching of players? Here's what I see, Jordan. I still see coaches that have their heart in the right place but sometimes get distracted by the money and the adulation and the attention and the pressure. And I know a little bit about that as well, because there's two kinds of coaches, those who have been fired, Jordan, and those who are going to be. And I've been part of both fraternities, by the way. And, and Jordan, I'm going to share with you, and I'll get back to your question in just a minute, but it, it popped an idea in my mind. My last year at Central Connecticut, I had a new athletic director that I knew for all intents and purposes, that I was probably going to be fired at the end of that season, almost regardless of what I did other than going to the NCAA tournament, which we came close but didn't quite make it. And so I was fired. Well, before that season started, I decided that in my own best mental health uh, interest, that I, I went to counseling that entire year. And I went to counseling because I wanted to be prepared for those moments when the pressure to win was at its worst and where I felt that pressure to maybe cross the line because I was the, the sole provider for my family, my heart needed to stay in the right place. And I'll never forget this. When we came down to the last three weeks of the season, a lot of rumors about me getting fired. We were playing pretty well, by the way, and we're becoming contenders in this program that was transitioning to division one, which is a very difficult job, but I'm glad I got a chance to do it. I put all my players on the baseline. And I told them that everything they read was true. I mean, I was transparent. Everything that they read was true, that there's a good chance I would be fired at the end of the season. But I said, guys, if nothing else, I've been loyal to you. And I worked really hard, our whole coaching staff has, to help you to be more successful in your lives. And all I'm asking for over the last three weeks is for you to be loyal to us, to do their job, do your job to the best of your ability and to carry those lessons learned on the floor and off the floor in the classroom and just do things the right way. Three more weeks is all I'm asking of you. And then we'll reevaluate where we're at and go from there. And I went to every young man, do we have your loyalty? Yes, sir. Do we have your loyalty? Yes, sir. That's a really healthy way to deal with that. And I think the coaches like me have their hearts in the right place, but sometimes they need reminders. And, and I would encourage any coach that gets sucked into that vortex of win, win, win to pull back from that. And if they need someone to talk to, I think professional counseling is a really good way to go. And it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. And I gained strength from that experience, even though I was fired in the end. I'm a happy guy right now. I've been out of coaching for 24 years, but, but I'm happy. And so I see coaches at times that get pulled into that vortex of pressure, winning, the adulation and the money that lifts them up. And, and they feel like they're bulletproof when they are not. They're human beings just like anybody else. And while the, the, the addiction to the winds and that adrenaline rush is, is high, but you've got to learn how to measure that and, and bring that high down to a level where you can function 
in, in a high functioning way, but also in a fair and empathetic way with your own student athletes. They become your friends. That's what they are. And I'm kind of curious, Mark, where do you sort of envision, uh, you know, some of those positive influences coming from, if you will, uh, you know, in terms of uh, sort of put like this, where, you know, we've seen a lot of the groundswell of, of player empowerment. And, and, you know, you mentioned some of the associations for college basketball coaches. Is, is it a peer-driven deal you think that has to take place to, to kind of continue on this progression? Does it have to come from administration within these institutions? Uh, I'm just kind of curious where you see uh, sort of the, the driving force as we hopefully encourage more coaches to, to look a little more introspectively and, and kind of continue along this progression. That's a great question, Jordan. And I think that there are probably about four tiers that need to be addressed here. Maybe more than that, but I would start with the presidents of universities where what culture are they building and the culture that they build within their academic community and the expectations of their professors, why should a coach have any different expectations as far as their decorum goes every day in teaching student athletes? Then you look at athletic directors. A large majority of athletic directors today have never coached a day in their life. Most of them are more uh, academic-driven, business-oriented types of professionals. There's nothing wrong with that. But athletic directors, I had an athletic director reach out to me yesterday, Jordan and Cano, and it was really interesting. He's no longer an athletic administrator today. He's in private business. And he reached out to me and said, man, you are dead on. And I wish I would have thought of this when I was an athletic director, because this is exactly the way that it should be. But again, because of those norms, those historic norms that we've had and accepting coaches and acting in certain ways, that that was okay. Well, it's not okay. And so I think that athletic directors need to become better corporate coaches, if you will, to demand the right behaviors from their coaches because athletic directors are going in and out of practices all the time. And then there is the NABC. We need leadership there. And right now with Craig Robinson being named as the new executive director with Nate Pomaday now, who was in the American as their associate commissioner of basketball operations, he's now the associate executive director of the NABC. And Nate and I have actually had this conversation about coaching decorum. Uh, he played for a college coach at Northwestern, Kevin O'Neill, who was you know, a great basketball coach, was also known for being very, very tough. And I'm not going to pile on guys here, but I'm going to say, again, I was part of the problem. And, and now I want to be part of the solution. And so I would hope that the NABC, led by the Conzo Martins, the Lavelle Motons at North Carolina Central, who, you know, is, is taking up the mantle of, of, of um, you know, some, some historic coaches along the way, like John McClendon, who, who was one of the great civil rights leaders in our country as a basketball coach. Uh, Calvin Sampson, all wonderful people. Penny Hardaway, Johnny Dawkins at UCF. I mean, there's so many great examples of coaches of color that I think this is the perfect time for them to step in and help every coach understand that this old way of being superior to your players and demanding certain behaviors uh, that you don't even follow doesn't make sense anymore. And then, and then you go to the player level. And I want the players to be activists. I mean, at ESPN, we're encouraged, if we see something that's wrong, we're encouraged to go to our supervisors and say, look, this was kind of messed up. And I've been in that position before, by the way. And I've gone to supervisors who have, been, who have listened, been fair, and, and have, have taken care of it, and then we all move on, you know? So I think from presidents to ADs to coaches to players, 
There's the outside noise, but that's the athletic director's job to shut that outside noise out of his, his or her organization and help his people, his team, be focused on the right behaviors at the right time and putting the right people in the right time based upon their talents and helping them to be successful. I can imagine some of the people listening now, and I think you even sort of braced for this in your article. Uh, they're going to be thinking, come on, the, the kids today are too soft. Uh, what do you say in response to some of that feedback? And have you received, since putting this article out there, some of that kind of response? Definitely have. There's no question about that. And I mean, I've been accused of, of all kinds of things uh, because I'm a friend of Greg Marshall's, and we can talk about that in a minute as well. Uh, and, and the fact that I've withheld judgment until the investigation is over. I've been called an enabler. I've been called a shill and uh, much worse than that as well. And, and I don't condone any of that behavior, by the way. But in getting to your question, Kanoa, um, look, I don't believe everybody should get a trophy. Uh, my son is a competitive young athlete. He has to earn everything that he gets. And I tell my son that he'll appreciate 99% of what I say and how I deliver it but there'll be 1% that he won't appreciate it as much, but he'll certainly remember it. And, and I've even worked hard to be more tempered with my own son uh, to help him understand. And, and he knows the look, okay? So some fathers have the look. I was blessed with a father who had the look, all right? And, and he was a former Marine and everything was yes, sir, no, sir in my house. And my teams are yes, sir, no, sir teams even today. And, but I believe that you can get your point across in a pointed way. I'll give you an example. Just this Sunday, our 15U team played baseball. We came through. We won on the last at bat. We won four to three. And my son actually got the double to win the game. So kudos to Robbie, you know, and I'm a proud dad. But there's one young man that I've coached for about the last six or seven years. And, and Kano and Jordan, he's just not playing hard right now. And so in front of the team, when we were done, I challenged one young man who had thrown his helmet. And by the way, I went and sat down next to him right after that. And here's my key phrase, and I tell players this. When I'm upset with you, you will hear a key phrase from me. And it goes like this. And I said, Connor, you're better than that. I want you to understand that. You're better than that. And we won't allow that type of behavior to continue. Now, you have a choice. You can continue throwing your helmet, or you can face the consequences. And the consequences will be severe. But that's your choice. But I love you. I believe in you. But you're better than that. That's the discussion I had with that young man. After the game, the young man who had not played as hard as I think that he should, I challenged him in front of the team and said, Kyle, I don't think you're playing as hard as you can. I've watched you for seven years, and I want to discuss this with you once Coach Urso is done because I'm the assistant coach. So afterwards, I sat down with Kyle, and I explained to him all the, all the experiences I've had with him and when he's played hard. And did he play hard today? Did he move his feet to get in front to make sure there wasn't a pass ball? Did he run after a fly ball as hard as he could? Did he come down the first baseline on that ground ball as fast as he could and sprint through first base as, as, as part of our team DNA? He said, no, sir. I said, why? I don't know. And I said, well, how can I help you? He said, coach, when you see this behavior from me, call me on it right away. Make sure I don't fall into that trap. And he thanked me and I told him I loved him. And also that my son, Robbie, had had a similar conversation with me two weeks ago, and it wasn't quite as, as uh, professional or, or as positive <laughs> as this one. And he laughed, you know. So, Kanoa, there are ways to connect with young men. And you know what I found is 
look, my former players from 17 to 20 some odd years ago, uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago now, I love them. And, and you know what? A lot of them love me, but I'm sure there's a population that doesn't. I'm, I'm positive of that. But that special bond that you can build to that investment of time one-on-one, and I'll give you one little uh, example of what I mean. I did a survey on Twitter uh, based upon our book, The Coach and the Geek Building a Kickbutt Culture. And I asked student athletes to respond, how often do you meet with your coach? Once a week, one-on-one now, one-on-one, once a week, once a month, never. 52% of respondents said never. 41% said one time per month. Do the math on that. That means just over 6% actually visit with their players one time a week one-on-one. There's something wrong with that. That's got to be changed. That's not real coaching. That's trying to win. And I don't respect that. And coaches need to do better. When student athletes tell me 93% of their coaches only meet with them one time per month or never, that's unacceptable. And I challenge coaches to understand that and look inward because your student athletes are watching and you're the example for their future. You know, it's really interesting because uh, you had mentioned money and the pressure that comes from that and the way the NCAA is currently constructed, where you have these coaches who can make millions upon millions of dollars. And while we're seeing certainly a movement towards greater compensation, uh, certainly empowerment for players, uh, there is an inherent chasm between the, the power and leverage status of a coach in collegiate sports and the student athlete. And I wonder if some of what we're seeing in terms of the allegations that have been put on Greg Marshall, what we saw with Mike Rice, as you mentioned, going all the way back to Bob Knight, if some of that is a a byproduct of just that social class system that is currently in place in college sports, uh, the coach is always going to be the authority figure. I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But the way it's constructed with so much money and and so much of that power and authority being given to just one side in that relationship, how much do you think that impacts uh, at least some of these instances that we see? I'll give you a few examples, both positive and negative. I had a national, multi-national championship coach tell me that money, the millions of dollars, was what was driving the illegal behavior, uh, the bending of the rules, if you will, blatantly breaking of the rules, if you will, of college basketball coaches because uh, they could they could ultimately decide that it was in their best interests. And, you know, they could become – I mean, look, Al Capone still went to his grave thinking he didn't really do anything wrong. You know, you can justify anything. But the bottom line is that there are coaches that have been cheating, get away with it, and why, but why have they cheated? because they make so much money that it's worthwhile for them to cheat. I had one coach one time tell me that he was making blank you money. Blank you money. Okay. And because nobody could touch him, it was, it was Teflon type thing. Um, but I also see coaches who understand that they want to build the student. They want to build the person. Uh, they want to build the professional profile for that, for that young, young man or young woman. And, and I still have the confidence in the large majority of coaches. And listen, Greg Marshall, I've been around Greg Marshall more than anybody in college basketball, as far as the media goes now, as far as the media goes. 
And I have to say that I saw a coach that was tough but fair. Now, was he like me? So, yes. Yeah. And, and I've already pleaded guilty to, to, to doing some of the things that I'm, I'm professing now that coaches shouldn't do. So call me a hypocrite, whatever you want. But you know what? Sometimes we have an epiphany. Sometimes God shines down upon us and we understand things a little bit better than maybe we did before. And that's the value of experience. And I hope that Greg learns from this experience. Something happened at Wichita State. Was it acceptable? Probably not. And now five years later, we're, we're dealing with the fallout of that situation among others. And so I see coaches that have their heart in the right place. I see a coach like Greg Marshall who called my son, Robbie, to encourage him to do better in his schoolwork. He called my father shortly before my dad died because my dad said that Greg Marshall was his favorite coach. So I have a, I have a personal respect and I have a personal relationship with Greg, but I also know I made mistakes where I was punished and I'm not going to walk away from a friend. I'm going to walk toward him instead. And I don't know how this investigation is going to play out, but Kanoa, to get back to your question, uh, money sometimes insulates people and sometimes puts pressure on them. And I've seen this in some of my friends who start making millions and millions of dollars. I can see them physically change based upon their record, the outcome of the game, where they walk off the floor relieved to win versus happy for their players that they won. There's a big difference. And, and I will admit there were times in my life when I walked off the court relieved winning for my own selfish interests versus being happy for my players that had executed well and been successful. So I'm calling out coaches that have made the same mistakes that I've made. And I hope that my voice will resonate within the coaching profession to help them to look inward. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating conversation uh, when we break it down, Mark, and, and I'm sure we could we could go for a while. I was kind of yeah. just wanted to switch gears ever so slightly and, and kind of get your take on um, the season that, that is hopefully coming up here and, and what you are maybe <laughs> expecting. I mean, it's a wild card at this point. We, we understand that. But, uh, you know, just, just kind of what you're hearing as to what this season could look like uh, once we hopefully get it tipped off in, you know, a little over a month now. Well, Jordan, I love you. I just want you to know that. I, 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 love, I love that question. I'll tell you why. So yesterday, Kanoa, and you know, you know how much, you sat next to me. So you know how much I love this. I mean, basketball has been part of my life since I was eight or nine years old, you know, and, and I, I, just, I just love it. And, and sitting next to you at 4 a.m., it's the national championship game for us, right? I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, it's, it's Idaho State and Hawaii or something. Okay, great. We're, we're all in, right? Um, well, yesterday I got a phone call from ESPN. My contract is up at the end of, of October, and I've been informed that I've been renewed for another year, you know, and, and I'm just I'm thrilled. I'm just thrilled. Um, I've had other conversations with professionals at ESPN, and, you know, it's really cool to see ESPN being part of the solution where um, – they are looking at best practices of the NBA, of the NHL, Major League Baseball, and they're sharing those best practices with college basketball and college football because content is king at ESPN. If there's no content, then, you know, over the pandemic, we saw what it was like with no sports. Um, I can tell you this, that ESPN, Fox, CBS, uh, everyone is united 
in doing everything possible to bring college basketball in the 2020-21 season. Um, I will be getting an in-home broadcast studio for all intents and purposes. Well, I will broadcast from home. So Kanoa, you know, even though you're in Honolulu and I'm over here in, just out of Dayton, Ohio, we can work together again virtually. And I'm excited about that. I think, you know, a lot of broadcasters complain about the, the re- we call them Remy's in the business, remote broadcast. I don't mind them. You know, I mean, it's still basketball and I still get to get excited about it. I still get to tell you about Johnny, who's a really cool kid and why this play worked and why it didn't. And so my, my, my message to all the college basketball fans is, is that, look, the NCAA is motivated. Why? $2 billion. That's with a B. $2 billion. <laughs> they are very motivated. ESPN is motivated. Why? Because the content that, that we can bring to viewers across the country that can't, probably won't be able to attend games and watch. And so Kanoa, our job is to bring them into that arena, even though we're not there, you know, and, and not complain about the fact that we're remote. Instead of I'd celebrate the fact that we're having games and help the fans to engage. And so I'm excited about the season. Now, will it look like other seasons? No, there's probably not going to be fans in the stands. There's going to be postponements and cancellations. I've told every coach that will listen to me, leverage every local team you can find. Now, I know in Hawaii that's difficult, all right? But, you know, in places like Cincinnati, Dayton, Ohio, we are surrounded by Division I schools. There are 13 Division I schools in our state alone, believe it or not. And so the, and that doesn't count Indiana and Illinois and West Virginia and Kentucky. I mean, Michigan, they're all within a four-hour drive of where I live. And so if you get a cancellation, if Ohio State, for example, Minnesota can't play them, well, why not call up Dayton and see if they have an open date and play them on that date? So you've just got to be flexible. It's going to be a day-to-day operation. That's why we've all operated along the way. But there will be college basketball in 2020-21. I believe that there will be. Well, I've told many people who have asked that uh, maybe the most passionate and enthusiastic person that I've had the privilege of working with is Mark Adams. Your Twitter handle is Enthusiadams. So, I mean, even, you know, that exudes that level of passion, certainly for the game and for life in general. And, and so I've always really appreciated that. Uh, about you and I think it's it's fascinating what you're referring to because I I get that sense from coaches that I've spoken with over the last couple of months uh, Iran Ganat from the University of Hawaii who you know from their perspective they have as big of a challenge in all of this as anybody because of their geography Uh, but that said he said hey look you know we're we're not going to be complaining about stuff too much this year this year is is for the greater good of the sport make sure we have that ncaa tournament that big dance that cash cow for our sport you even heard it from the acc coaches and coach k who was leading this proposal to just hey put everybody in the tournament and so there seems to be a, a, a much greater regard for the basketball landscape as a whole certainly compared to what we saw in college football where the conferences were basically like all right, you do your own thing. We're going to do our own thing and see if you can keep up. And, and, and it's, yeah. it's just a different mentality when it comes to college basketball from what we've heard so far. No question about that, Kanoa. And, and the thing that I'm excited about is that the coaches are generally united. Now, there, there is fragmentation on are we going to play non-conference games or are we going to play just conference games? But there's a, there's a medical reason for that because – the people who can afford the testing are the ones that can also afford to play against each other because there's lesser physical risk to their players, whereas in lesser budgets, you brought it up earlier on, and there, there are lesser budget conferences, 
And that's how I divide high major versus other majors based upon the budgets of the conferences on average. And so the conferences who have the money to do the regular testing will feel safer in playing against each other versus other conferences that don't have the same protocols, then we're not going to see as many quote unquote buy games, for example, where maybe Belmont travels to Washington to play for, you know, 75 to a hundred thousand dollars. That's not going to be as prevalent. And by the way, those games are shrinking down to be like, like $25,000. So that's going to create a whole nother budget issue for schools of that size. So it's going to be interesting to watch it play out. But I haven't talked to one coach or one conference commissioner, because I'm kind of locked into that as well with some of my work that I've done in scheduling over the years, that, that believes that college basketball will not take place. Everyone today is of the mindset that it will happen. It will be different. We need to be flexible. But there's too much at stake here, not beyond the health and safety of our players, but there's so much at stake that everyone, and the players want it too, man. The players want more than anybody because they lost out on the NCAA tournament a year ago, and the players don't want to lose out on that again. Well, I'm just happy to hear that you are also still coaching, because I know that that's something that pumps through your veins. You talked about the book. Uh, could you enlighten us just a little bit more on, on where it's available and, and sort of what was behind that? Yeah, it's, it's called The Coach and the Geek, Building a Kick-Butt Culture. I'm obviously not the geek. Uh, I was the coach, and it's a fictional story about – a college basketball coach that's uh, coaching in a school named Bozeman Tech. By the way, I've got my Rocky Mountain College gear on today from Billings, Montana. And it was kind of based on that school. And, you know, he's going to get fired. He's in his third year. They're not doing well. He took over a program, gone through 17 consecutive losing seasons. And Coach Woodward is his name. And he's 0-3 and headed nowhere. And his athletic director doesn't like him very much. And by a twist of fate, he runs into a software engineer that gets fired from his corporate job because he really lost his identity in that corporate culture and was surrounded by people that were only interested in profits versus people. And finally, he, he, he confronted that among all of his managers and bosses in a, in a stand, what we call a stand-up meeting in the business and in, in, uh, in IT. And he was let go. And through a twist of fate, these two meet and they begin to develop a different way to communicate with players, to hold their players accountable, to build a different accountability culture through common sense use of technology, through the investment of time of a coach, some of which I actually did. Some of it's fiction, but some of it is very, very real. And and Jeff and I, Van Fleet, who's the geek in this and the president of Lighthouse Technologies, uh, it was really born on a sales call we were making together. And he turns to me on I-70 just before Columbus, Ohio, and says, Mark, I know you won a lot of games, but I know you lost a lot of games too. And he said, when you took over the worst program in the country, how did you keep them engaged? How did you hold them accountable? And a coach, the coach and the geek building a kick butt culture was born from that discussion when at the end he said, you should write a book about that. And I said, no, we should write a book about it. I'm really proud of it. Amazon.com, the coach and the geek building a kick butt culture by Mark Adams and Jeff Van Fleet. And guys, I want your addresses as well. I'll send you a free copy. And I, I, it's guaranteed to put you to sleep at night, but it's only 150 pages. So you can get it through it really, really fast. And the, the response we've gotten, and the other thing is it's really cool. We're now in the process of actually building an app that coaches can use for that weekly contact with their players individually on the floor. And then also putting together a career best effort, hustle stats, if you will, career best effort stats for on the floor that can be tracked in real time 
so that players can know if they're performing the basic tasks to be successful. It's not about setting goals. It's about basic tasks to be successful, both on and off the floor. And we're building that app right now. It's going to be called Focus. We're really excited about it. And we're coming to coaches again, Kanoa and, and Jordan, with a solution. We're not just talking the talk here. We're walking the walk. We're bringing a real solution that they can put in, in their programs and have a more accountability culture, a better communication culture, and ultimately do what we've talked about today, which is yet let young women and young men really fulfill their life's dreams by becoming great professionals in some way. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff. I just got one more, Mark. Uh, you, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but you and Canole working those late night, early morning games in the old ESPN tip-off yeah. marathons. I remember living in LA and, and setting my alarm to wake up at 1 a.m. in the morning so I could watch the University of Hawaii game uh, <laughs> as it came on. And I used to watch that thing half asleep and, and probably watched you guys uh, uh, once or twice. But uh, what, what do you remember from, from those games? Being, you know, it's the middle of the night. You got the zany fans in the stands <laughs> there. A lot of them are students yeah, who aren't going yeah. to class the next day. Uh, but uh, what, what do you remember from, from those games and working with this guy over here? Well, first of all, Kanoa, it's nice to know that one person was watching, and now we know who it was, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, the thing I remember about Kanoa was how welcoming he was of me, and that's one thing I like about coming to the islands. I always feel very welcome. But, you know, here's a young guy, and I've worked with a lot of very talented play-by-play uh, -play professionals, and Kanoa would certainly be part of that. Luke Shambi did some of his early games uh, with me. Adam Amin did some of his early games with me. Rich Hollenberg. Uh, we, we, we spent years together, you know, that way. And, and of course, Kanoa, I'm so proud of you and happy for you. The other thing that, that Kanoa was impeccably prepared. I mean, I couldn't have, and that's big to me. I mean, that, that's like the big deal, you know. And, and the other thing was, too, that I, I love about Kanoa, and I, I, I tell this of my favorite play-by-play -play partners, he's naturally curious. And as an analyst, that's what you want. You want a guy that understands what happened on the floor and then can bring you in as to the why. That's my job, to teach the why. And as a young broadcaster, uh, we, we both got a little bit older. You still look pretty damn good to me. So I, <laughs> I don't know about that. But, uh, but, you know, he, he was naturally curious, and I really enjoyed that. So we get off the air, and it's like 6.30 Eastern time in the morning by the time we get off, okay? And my sons were, got up to go to school that morning. They turned on the television – and there was their dad <laughs> doing the Hawaii game. My kids got to see their dad at 6.30 a.m. Eastern time live on a college basketball game. And that's when I realized that I'm the only analyst in college basketball history to do four consecutive years at 4 a.m. on non-HD TV from Hawaii. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, Mark, uh, just, just really happy that we had this opportunity to uh, re-engage, if you will, and, and thanks so much for, for your time here on the podcast. Oh, you bet. Jordan, thanks so much. Nice to meet you today. And, and Kanoa, listen, I'm a huge fan. Whenever I hear your voice, I'm like, okay, I'm watching this one. So keep up the great work, man. And I, I, hope, I really hope sincerely we get a chance to work together again because I really had fun uh, when we did it. And, and uh, hopefully we'll be paired together again someday. All right, big thanks to Mark Adams. We appreciate his time. 
Time now for our best and worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. What is your best for this episode of the pod, Jordan? Yeah, my best here, uh, kind of going back to the bubble a little bit and kind of using this as a bridge, but Phil Handy, our guy, former University of Hawaii, great. There had been footage of him doing one-on-one drills with all the kids in the bubbles, the kids of the players. He was putting them through the paces and ball handling drills, and I just thought that was terrific. Like, always the coach, right? Always the player development coach is Phil Handy, and I thought it was awesome. I mean, you got kids out there like five, six, eight years old, uh, working. And I mean working. It wasn't just like some fun, feel-good, get-a-t-shirt kind of clinic deal. Uh, Phil Handy was putting them through the paces. Uh, but I also bring that up because uh, his name's been kind of flying around a little bit here after Kendrick Perkins had, had said, you know, hey, why isn't this guy getting more love in terms of some of the head coaching jobs? Maybe not for head coaching jobs, but for higher profile assistant jobs. One with the Nets. His name's been linked to the Pelicans as well. Uh, and so a guy who has definitely been embraced by a lot of the big time players in the league is getting uh, even more high profile love and, and could be working his way up the coaching ladder pretty quickly here. Yeah, I think his value is being identified and recognized. Even LeBron James in an Instagram story was basically saying, hey, look, when LBJ and PH hook up, look out because they've done this before. They did it in Cleveland, claiming the championship in 2016. Here they are reunited in Los Angeles and it results in another championship trophy. So to get that kind of uh, public vote of confidence from LeBron James, that probably serves you pretty well when it comes to your profile within the coaching industry as well. All right, my best, Joaquin Buckley's KO, recording one of the greatest knockouts in UFC history, a spinning back kick to put Impa Kasanganai to sleep after Kasanganai had caught a previous leg kick, was actually still holding Buckley's other foot. And then Buckley just kind of jumped up, whirled around, delivered one of those crazy leg back kicks, and oh my goodness, it was good night. I I didn't see this live, but I I saw it on Twitter, you know, almost right after it happened, because of course this is going to set, you know, social media ablaze. I mean, just, I don't, I can't imagine having the imagination to do that. Yeah, it was uh, rigor mortis time after that one. Uh, That was pretty crazy. Yeah, I don't know how you have the imagination. I don't even know how you have the physical capacity, balance, or athleticism to do something like that. All right, my worst. Uh, This is a bit of a a sham in DeChambeau being placed by one of his colleagues in professional golf. Matt Fitzpatrick criticized Bryson DeChambeau, saying that his way of playing golf doesn't require skill. He went on to say, quote, he's making a bit of a mockery of the game. Basically, he's saying, hey, look, I could put on 40 pounds and I can add distance to my driver. But to me, golf is all about precision and accuracy and hitting the ball straight. DeChambeau can just blast it past everybody and hit with wedge out of trouble, deep grass, wherever it may be. And he says, that's not real golf. It's my worst because that is such a bunch of crap. Like, of course, Bryson DeChambeau and the way he plays the game requires skill. It is still golf. The other thing is there's some skill in being able to do the arithmetic to figure out what you need to do to your body to add distance to your game so that you can make that game more efficient and more beneficial to you. That is ridiculous. And Fitzpatrick uh, basically just delivering a case of the hates. Absolutely. Look, he found ways to maybe cut some corners in terms of the course layout in the U.S. Open. But there is no way you can win 
the U.S. Open of golf <laughs> with no skill. Like, that's, it's impossible. And again, he, he powered through some parts of that course. Don't get me wrong. And he, that he was smart enough and, and figured out a way to go ahead and do that. And maybe, you know, accommodated for some of his inaccuracies off the tee when it came to, you know, striving for that kind of distance. But I mean, come on, the dude won the U.S. Open. Like, <laughs> yeah, how do you not have skill? All right. Uh, we'll let you have the last word with your worst here, Jordan. Yeah, my worst uh, kind of hits close to home. Uh, my, my alma mater, Occidental College in Los Angeles, uh, where I went and played football. And the only reason I went there in large part was because of the football program, uh, announced yesterday that they are dropping football, that they are discontinuing the football program. Uh, that went over like lead balloons uh, for a lot of, you know, I was on a lot of text streams and, and message boards yesterday with a lot of guys that uh, I had played with. And, and it's just kind of a culmination of uh, last eight years or so where the school really hasn't supported the program. It took an incredible alumni effort uh, after they basically canceled the season three years ago, uh, incredible amount of uh, capital drive and, and led by former Raiders running back, Occidental alum, Vince Miller, um, you know, uh, the, Jim Mora was the former coach there and went to Occidental. Jack Kemp, the legendary quarterback and, and former politician, was uh, arguably the best player to come out of that program. Uh, and uh, I think this is an, another instance like we have seen with Stanford Volleyball, with other programs at very high profile and, and money-making institutions uh nobody is immune at this point and the reasons given were financial and everything and all of that kind of deal uh, but this isn't in a vacuum uh, the program there really hasn't been supported the last eight years or so and and um you know we, we the campaign that you know we've seen stanford volleyball alum kind of go through now to try and save the program uh we kind of went through about two three years ago and thought that we had kind of gotten the program back to the point with financial support and, and stability. Uh, and then now to kind of have the plug pulled like this is a bit of a gut punch. So that's, uh, that's definitely my worst uh, here this week. And just uh, I feel terrible for the guys on the program now or on the team and within the program now. And, you know, it's got some ties to Hawaii too, not just me. I mean, uh, Darna Arsenal has coached there. Brian Smith was the offensive coordinator there in recent years. Doug Simonis, former Kahuku coach was the head coach there for a time as well. And, and I'm sure if you get Coach Simonis on the phone, he can tell you about uh, the lack of support that he got. And, uh, you know, I just feel bad for all the guys that put so much work in. So, yeah, that's my parting shot here for this episode. Yeah, that's why I wanted to give you the floor there because I know that that's something that means a lot to you. And that's a bummer, man. Uh, but well put and hopefully brighter days ahead maybe in the future for Occidental. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui. Owned Maui, operated for Maui's people. That's it for us. Thanks once again to uh, our guy, Mark Adams, for joining us here in this episode of the podcast. You can hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. Jordan, until next time, have a good one. See ya.